Hopefully you uh, noticed the common theme there between that song and the one at the end of the lesson. If you didn't, you will. Do we stand or do we fold? With our young folks returning to school, with a lot of personal contact beginning to slowly resume in our society, and with our ever-present need to boldly speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ and to take the gospel to those lost all around us in our little sphere of influence every day. That is the title of this morning's lesson. Do we stand or do we fold? I'd like to begin this morning by having you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. And while you're doing that, I'd like to give you a little bit of history about the city of Ephesus, particularly in the first century. Ephesus was, in the first century, the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. Ephesus was known for many things, as many cities today are. Ephesus was known for its art. It was known for its trade. It was known for its science. But it was even more celebrated as the place where the Temple of Diana was located. The Temple of Diana in ancient Ephesus was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I want you to get a picture of this in your mind, if you might. Excavations tell us that the temple was 425 feet long. That's a long building for those folks. 425 feet long, 220 feet wide. And this temple of Diana was supported by 127 marble, mind you, marble columns. Each one of those 127 marble columns was 60 feet high, 60 feet. Consider in those days construction and imagine a marble column 60 feet high, many of them with ornate carvings. If you want to know roughly what 60 feet is, think of a tractor trailer stood on end. It's a little more than 60 in most cases, but not a lot. What a place. No wonder it was so famous. Ephesus was also, due to its location directly between Rome and the east, or, or Asia as it was, Ephesus was kind of right between them. If you were going from Rome and you were going into Asia, the most direct route was to pass through Ephesus. So. Not only was it a place where the sea met the land, but it was also a hub, like the hub of a wheel. Old wagon wheels with spokes going off. Ephesus was a hub, as it were, a hub through which passed a lot of military, religious, and business traffic. Very busy place. People coming and going all the time to this, to this hub to either go back out to sea or to go into Asia. Very, very busy place. Now, we see some of these things reflected in the scriptures in Acts chapter 19. As we kind of breeze through Acts 19 here, 
The first seven verses would tell us that when the Apostle Paul arrived there that he found and baptized about a dozen disciples with the one baptism, the one baptism that he would later write about in Ephesians chapter four and verse five. We then look at verses eight through 10 wherein it says, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them, withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Please notice, there was a lot of people that were speaking up against his teaching, against what he was teaching, but Paul was not afraid. Paul was not ashamed. Paul did not stop preaching. He simply moved to another place in the city, from my understanding, really close by. He simply moved to another place in the city where there would be more peace that he could teach his disciples or teach the disciples of the Lord there. However, despite the great miracles that Paul did there, despite the great gospel that, Jesus, that Paul brought to Ephesus, Despite these great things, there was something else that happened. A great commotion arose against Paul, against the message, against the things he taught regard, regarding the fact that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. All of those things that he taught, which he also wrote about later in his epistle to the Ephesians in, in Ephesus, in Ephesians, I can say that word, Ephesians chapter four, verses four through six. Look with me down in Acts 19 at verse 23 and we will see this verified. About that time, there arose a great commotion about the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupations and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. This is where we make our money. Moreover, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but out throughout almost all Asia, this Paul, I'd like to have been there to heard that because you almost see him spitting that out. This Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. How dare he, right? <laughs> so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed whom all Asia and the world worship. We can't have this. Paul is running around telling people that gods made with hands aren't gods. Not only are we going to lose our income, not only are we going to lose our living, but oh no, the great temple. Diana herself and the worship may fall into disrepute. Wow. This is what he says. And, and it's interesting here, because on in verse 28, to say, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. This is, she is, 
just our goddess and, and she's so wonderful and we can't have this happening. Matter of fact, if you jump down for just a minute to verse 35, you'll find out that when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? It's like, who doesn't know this? Who, who doesn't know how great and awesome she is? What's interesting to me is that temple today is in utter ruins. That temple is in utter ruins, as is the entire city of Ephesus, which was once so proud of it. Not one, according to the resources I've read, not one living soul resides within what used to be Ephesus. Nobody. And the temple is just rubble. And while that's the case, the church, which Paul proclaimed there, is still alive and well. Amen, Shoto? Amen. The church, the Lord Jesus, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism that Paul came in there and taught is still alive and well in our world today. Guess that kind of takes care of that, doesn't it? However, moving on in verse 29, so the whole city was filled with confusion, rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. Now watch this. And when Paul wanted to go in to the people, Paul wanted to get in there. He wanted a chance to proclaim the message. He knew they were hostile. He knew that they were filled with confusion. There's anger, there's wrath. He knows all this stuff is going on, but he just can't wait to get in there. Tell him about Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Paul wants to go in to the people. The disciples would not allow him because of his own risk, the risk of his life. Then some of the officials of Asia, apparently the gospel's gotten to them too. Didn't Paul do a great job? Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Not only did the disciples not want him to go, but some of those in higher places pleaded with him not to go in. Why would they plead with him? Because they knew him. <laughs> they knew. All he cared about was preaching the gospel telling people that were lost about Jesus Christ. And so they pleaded with him as well that he would not venture into the theater. Paul was not afraid. He was not ashamed to speak up. He was not afraid, ashamed, or ready to fold up, turn tail, shut down, shut up, run to safety. Instead, Paul was more than willing, more than able, more than ready to run into the arena to stake his claim, as it were, on the solid rock of Christ's gospel, to stand his ground and proclaim and defend the gospel of his beloved Lord and Savior. After what Jesus had done for him, he could do no less. Therefore, as we consider those things, is it any wonder that he closed his epistle to the Ephesians later with the words he did. Turn with me to the last chapter of Ephesians. Very familiar text. But is it any wonder that he closed this epistle with the following words? You know what he told them? 
stand your ground. Look what he writes. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally, my brethren. He said this is the wrap-up. When, when Paul says finally, he's wrapping up the whole thing. He's coming to the conclusion. He's going to tell them what, what's most important. Finally, let me leave you with this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And when you understand how full that city was of people that were devoted to this false goddess, you can begin to understand Paul's insight when he says this. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, not just bits and pieces, put on the whole thing that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. And brethren, I'm here to tell you something you already know, but you know we're still battling the powers of darkness in this age. He says, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, therefore, then tell them again, Take up the whole armor of God. Second time I've heard that in just a few verses. Why, Paul? Why take it all up? Why, why go to the effort of putting it on? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand there. Is he making a point? Four times. Four times. In just a few short verses. Verses 11 through 14, four times. He's saying, stand. You gotta be able to stand. You gotta be able to withstand. That's why you take on the full armor of God. Verse 14, stand therefore. You know what happened in those days when you went down on the ground in a battle, you were basically done. You had to be able to stand. Stand your ground. He says, stand therefore again, verse 14. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. A few years ago, I had the opportunity, the privilege, to come to Shoto to do a marriage seminar. This is one of the things we talked about, so if you were there, this may sound a little familiar, but it certainly bears repeating. When he says here in verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, what the idea here is, Shod your feet. You, you've got to, you've got to, if you're going to stand, you've got to put something on your feet that's going to help you stand. Notice it's preparation. You don't wait until you get into the battle to put your shoes on. You don't wait until you get into the football game and you're out on the field to put your cleats on. It's preparation. It happens beforehand with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's my understanding that what Roman soldiers would often do in order, because during, during a battle it was very easy to get, to get pushed back or pushed around, so what some of these soldiers would do is they would put what we call hobnails down through the soles of their shoes. A, a modern day equivalent you might think of as spikes, football player with spikes. They drive these hobnails down. And what these would do with their shoes when they were preparing to fight is they could, they could dig in and hold their ground and stand their ground. If you've ever watched any of these movies that show a depiction of, of Roman soldiers in battle, what it will often show you is a front line of Roman soldiers, and they'll have their shields up, these big shields. And 
they'll move kind of as one and the enemy forces come toward them and when they clash, these soldiers have got to be able to stand their ground and not get pushed back. So if they had these hobnails, it would dig into the ground and hold them there. That's the idea here. If we know the gospel, if we're prepared with the facts of the gospel, we're not gonna get pushed back. This is the idea that he's putting across. We're gonna dig in with football season starting. Might think of, again, you know, when the linemen get down and they get in their three-point stance, you'll often see them. I know you can't see me back there, but imagine. They, you'll often see them kind of digging in with their feet, right? You'll see them as they get down in their stance kind of, kind of digging in and get ready. Why? Because they don't want to get pushed back. So with these cleats, they dig in and they lean forward like this. That's the idea. If you're prepared to dig in, you can stand, stand, withstand, and stand, which is what he told them. You can stay on your feet, you can hold your ground. But this is not the first time the Apostle Paul would mention the absolute life and death necessity of digging in, standing your ground with the gospel, of digging in, and standing your ground on matters of faith and doctrine and all things pertaining to the Lord and his way and his word and his church, no matter what Satan throws at you, these Ephesian Christians were going to have to dig in. They were going to have to be ready to defend the gospel against these Diana worshipers and everybody else. That's why he left them with that message in the end. But again, as I said, it's not the first time nor the last time. Let me give you a few examples. Paul wrote to the first century Christians in the congregation of the Lord's Church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, watch, stand fast. What does that mean? Dig in. Stand fast. Notice, stand. Don't fall. Stand your ground. Dig in. Stand fast. In what, Paul? A lot of people stand fast in a lot of things. Stand fast in, Paul says, stand fast in the faith. Not the faith, because there's only one faith, as he wrote to the Ephesians, one Lord, one faith. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Do not let anybody push you off of standing on the solid rock of Christ and the bedrock of his word. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter what they believe, and yes, you can do it lovingly, yes, we'll get to that at the end of the lesson, but at the same time, he said, you've got to have your feet, you've got to have those hobnails prepared. You've got to be ready to stand your ground. To the first century brethren in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 15, same message, he says, therefore, brethren, notice the therefore, connecting it to what he said, therefore, brethren, stand fast, there he goes again, Stay on your feet and hold the traditions which you were taught either by word or our epistle. It's interesting. He says, hold the traditions. You know, people today think that tradition's a dirty word or a bad word. You people are too traditional. Well, Paul says, hold fast to the traditions. Traditions are neither positive nor negative. Traditions are traditions. It's like fire, okay? Can fire be both good and bad? If it's 30 below zero and you're ice fishing on a lake in Maine, you want a fire, it's a good thing. 
But if you're down here and fire burns your house down, that's a bad thing. But fire itself is neither good nor bad. It, it depends on, on where it's used and how it's used. Traditions are the same way. Paul says, stand fast on the traditions, he tells them. Now, can some traditions be against what God's word says? Are there man-made traditions that we're told not to? Sure. Traditions can be wrong if they contradict God's word, but tradition can be good as well. He says, stand fast. Hold those traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. In the first century, they had all they needed to stand fast before God, didn't they? He said, you got you to talk. We don't need stuff that came along years later. It's all right there. Stand fast, Paul says, in what we taught you, either by the traditions or, or, or by our epistles. But again, it was stand fast. Another familiar passage, Philippians 1 and verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I am telling you right now, how much more powerful our message would be, how much more powerful his message through us would be to the lost world around us if all of the churches stood together in one mind, one spirit, teaching the same thing. That's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, that the world may know that you're one. Why? Because he is. And, and Paul is repeating that same message to our brethren in the Lord's church in Philippi, in Philippians 1.27. And he goes on from there, actually, and he says, <clears throat> Stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Notice it's singular, the gospel. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. What's his point? You can stand together in one mind, one spirit, united, all believing and teaching the same thing. And you know what that does? That proves to those who would contradict the will of God that's proof to them of their perdition, their ruination in hell is what the word actually means. Gospel is designed that way, but again, we notice that stand fast. For those of you that uh, I think probably most everybody gets the bulletin by email, if you don't, let one of us know and, and you will, but as Brother Cecil May stated in this week's bulletin article, truth is a strong force. It has nothing to fear with a confrontation with evil. In encounters with error, truth will always prevail. Christians who stand on God's word, God's word alone, who are not too proud if they are wrong to say, well, maybe I've got that wrong, because we're all human, preacher included, but Christians who will stand on God's word, who will dig in, stand on God's word. We have nothing to fear in a religious discussion. Do we understand that? Really? Say, well, I, I don't know. Well, it's all right here. God gave us the answer book. We have nothing to fear in a discussion of religious matters that somehow, if we're standing on this and this alone, that we're going to come up short. This is right. We can't lose. And if somebody comes along and, and shows me something that maybe I was wrong on, do you know what that does for me? 
Makes me a better Christian, doesn't it? If somebody comes along and says to me, and, and proves from the scriptures, Doug, you misunderstood, and I misunderstand things. As, as Peter said to Cornelius, I'm just a man, <laughs> okay? But if somebody comes to me and they say, let's study this, and I stand back and I go, wow, you know, I, I may not have had that quite right. They've made me a better Christian. They've made me understand the word of God better. If I lose, I win. If I win, I win. If I lose, I win. That's a pretty good deal, ain't it? We have nothing to fear standing on this Bible. Nothing, 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 not ever. We do not have to give way when our cleats are not only well-grounded but anchored in solid rock. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. When our hobnails, the, the gospel of peace, that we, that we put on our feet, when that is not only dug into, but a part of that solid rock of Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear, brethren. People may not always agree with our conclusions, but they will respect our convictions. That's what happened with Peter. Turn to me to Acts 4. Acts chapter 4. Beginning at verse 5. Acts chapter 4, beginning of verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now get the picture. Where have we seen the names Annas and Caiaphas before? These are the two guys that were responsible, largely responsible in part, probably only a few weeks, maybe as many as two months, but six weeks or two months earlier, these were the guys that got Jesus crucified, amongst others. But they were major cogs in that wheel. And, and so you've got them all here. You've got the rulers. Don't know how many, but rulers. You've got elders. Don't know how many, but you got them. You got the scribes. You got Annas. You got Caiaphas. You got John, Alexander, the family of the high priest. You know what this is? This is the who's who of the religious hierarchy in Jesus' day. This is the elite crowd. This is the group. Family, scribes, elders, these are the guys. And you got this big, uh, for, for my mind's picture anyway, you got this big circle of them. I don't know how many people were there, 50, 70, I don't know, 100, whatever. But wh however big this group was, families and leaders, these are the guys that you know were largely responsible for Jesus being put to death. And then they, what do they do? <laughs> what do they do? They put two of the apostles right in the middle of the circle. Now, I don't know if it was a circle or not, but in my mind's eye, there's this bigger, and, and right, because it says here, it says, when they had set them in the midst, these two apostles, set them in the midst, in the middle of them, by what power, by what name have you done this? If I'm there with Peter, and I'm thinking Peter's about ready to do what Peter's about to do, do we stand or do we fold? Maybe if I'm ready to fold, I go, Peter, 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 shut up. 
Peter was having none of it. He's ready to stand. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you... Man! He says, he doesn't just say by the name of Jesus Christ. He says, the name of Jesus Christ, who you crucified. Peter, 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 Peter. Do you know what that means? That means they can do that to us. Peter doesn't care. Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. <gasps> By him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders. He hits them again. Which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Guess that answers that question, don't it? Do we stand up or fold up? No question about Peter here. And when they saw the boldness, here's the beauty, brethren. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained. I mean, this is the, this is the elite hierarchy. These are, these are people who supposedly knew their Bible. These were the, their Old Testament anyway. These were the top. And they looked at these two and went, these guys don't, they didn't even go to seminary. What's their problem? They realized they were uneducated, untrained. They marveled. They thought, this can't be happening. Until. Then they, what? Realized, hey, wait a minute. These guys have been with Jesus. Then they realized they had been with Jesus. You see, Peter here had two options. Stand up for Jesus in the midst of this hostile and intimidating crowd, or he could fold up, fold up in fear of them and let the Lord who died for him down. He chose to stand up instead of to fold up. And even though the hostilities continued, and even though we don't see you know, any of these people being converted, specifically here in this situation, at least like it says with Ezekiel in chapters two and three of Ezekiel, at least they knew, well with Ezekiel there had been a prophet amongst them, but with Peter they knew that a person who had been with Jesus was amongst them. Now, as you know, there were many times before this when Peter had folded up like a bad paper airplane. He had folded up and gone so far out of sight, it was incredible. He folded up when he should have manned up and stood up and spoken up. You remember in Matthew chapter 26, turn there with me if you would. Matthew 26, just real briefly, we know the story very well. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 35, Peter said he'd stand up for Jesus no matter what. Even the others didn't, boy, he was ready to. And it's so easy, brethren, it is so easy, it's so easy here on Sunday morning to say, yeah, that's me. I'll stand with you. We're surrounded by people who love Jesus. We're surrounded by like-minded people who love the Lord. 
It, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'm all in for Jesus. But it's a little easier to do that than it is to get out there Monday morning when you're surrounded by a crowd that's very anti-God, maybe in school, high school, maybe college, maybe where you work. And all of a sudden, when you've got six or eight of your coworkers or friends, and all of a sudden, they start talking down organized religion. Sometimes a little harder than to speak up. Peter found that out, as we know. If we go down, we look down here in Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 and 8, he didn't want to be recognized as a true follower of Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, verses 57, 58. Those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. See, there he is. Where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we just read in Acts? Doesn't that sound a lot? Annas, Caiaphas, council, the priests, the elders. It sounds, Peter. <laughs> you suppose somebody told Peter, hey Peter, about six to eight weeks down the road, you're gonna take all these guys on. Not so much here. All the council saw, sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. It says in verse 69, Peter went outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus. But he denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you're saying. When he gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were with him, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he said, I, I don't know the man. A little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you're one of them for your speech betrays them. He began to curse and swear, saying, I don't know the man. See, Peter folded up a lot. He folded up like a worn out accordion. But here's the thing that we need to understand. Sometimes we're afraid to stand up and speak up for Jesus when we should, but, but here's the thing. We think maybe somehow Satan convinces us that we'll be better off in our own heads if we just fold up and shut up and go away and don't talk about him. But here's the thing. Folding up instead of standing up for Jesus always brings misery for the person who truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ because sooner or later they know they're going to have to deal with the fact that they completely let him down. Peter does. Look right here in this very passage. Matthew 26 and verse 74. Right after he said, I don't know the man, cursing and swearing, immediately a rooster crowed. Peter remembered the words of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. What happened to Peter? He had to deal with that. See, when we fold up instead of standing up, we're gonna to have to come to grips with having let down the one who would not get down off the cross even when he had the power to because of his love and loyalty and devotion to us. Shutting up and folding up instead of standing up and holding up Jesus not only is, is bitter and heartbreaking to those who love him, 
There's also a very predictable outcome, and this is something we don't often talk about. If we fold up instead of stand up for Jesus in a hostile crowd like the Apostle Peter did here, you know what that means? It means several things. Number one, it means the pagans will come out on top. And as the winners, as it were, they get to dictate what happens to you next. Did you ever think about that? If they win and we shut up and fold up instead of standing up, they get to dictate to you as a Christian what happens to you next. We know that from this story. Think about it. Second thing it gets and allows to happen is that those who don't know God get to fire up your fear. They get to silence your message. In some cases, they get to ruin your reputation as a Christian, as well as ruining Jesus' reputation in front of all of those other people, and they return you to obscurity instead of a factor that can save the lives of the lost around you. That's what they get to do to you. Because if you start being silent when you need to speak up about Jesus Christ, then those who don't know him get to determine all those things about you. That's exactly what happened with Peter and the apostles. Isn't that what happened? John chapter 20 and verse 19, where do we find the disciples? We find them behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, right? Once they decided, or once Peter decided that he was gonna deny Jesus and he wasn't gonna speak up when he needed to, but he's gonna fold up, look where it put them. It put them behind doors for fear of the Jews. It relegated them to closet status. Now, it caused them to live in fear, lose some of their faith, and hide behind closed doors. Now, contrast that, again, John 20, verse 19. Contrast that. <laughs> contrast that with what happened in Acts 4 and 5. I'm not going to read it. You can go home and read it. But contrast that with what happened in Acts chapters 4 and 5 when Peter stood up for Jesus in the midst of this same crowd. What happened? I'm gonna tell you what happened. If you read Acts 4 and 5, you know what you're gonna see? Joy. You're going to see joy. You're going to see rejoicing. You're gonna see church growth in Acts 4 and 5 exploding when they spoke up instead of folding up. Church growth exploded and God blessed them and answered their prayers to speak even more boldly and it's all in Acts 4 and 5. Same thing we must do when it comes to speaking up for the gospel that saves us, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. The grace which sanctifies us, Romans 5, 1 and 2. And every other word of God's holy truth, 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 4, 4. Because if we continually and always fold up and seek to be silent with those who distort this word, instead of standing up and on it, then we really have to wonder if we understand where our allegiance is. Let me illustrate it to you this way.
turn it so you can see it. Everybody can see that, right? It's bright yellow. If you can't see this. Step ladder. Remember what Jesus said about nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, but instead they put it on a lampstand for all to see in the Sermon on Mount Matthew 5? As long as that step ladder's standing up, I can put my Bible up there and y'all can see it, right? The Word of God's very visible because there's something standing up there that holds it up for everybody to see. Now, I dare say that, <clears throat> pardon the pun, you know this is coming, right? I dare say that I can stand on something like that without any problem, just like if we stand up instead of folding up and we hold God's word up, others can come along and take their stand on what we're saying. But here's the problem. Did you notice? This thing's pretty sturdy. Did you notice that it will not close like that? You see, a lot of us stand when we talked about politics, sports, entertainment. We can stand in there with the best of them. When somebody hits that little button called religion, just like this little yellow button, there's a little yellow button on this. All I got to do is move it in the right direction. Guess what? This thing folds up real easy. Now. How well do you think that's going to work when I let go of it? Eric, would you come stand on this and climb to the third rung with it folded up? Probably not. Nobody would. There's no stability. When it's folded up, it's used. You know what happens to a folded up stepladder? It gets put back in the closet. We cannot allow our Christianity to become something that when somebody pushes the right button and brings up religion, that we fold up and go into the closet. Instead, that's who we need to be every day. Do we stand or do we fold? That is the question. That's also the answer. Brethren, as we conclude this morning, let us always determine, if, if you don't get anything else out of this lesson, get the illustration. It's yellow and big and gray, you can't miss it. Let us always strive to be a people who stand up. Locked, Did you, this is locked in place. You saw me when I tried to, it's locked. Let us be a people who stand up instead of fold up when we are surrounded by a crowd that is hostile to the truth that we bring. And may they never, therefore, be allowed to silence our message, to send us scurrying into obscurity, and to dictate whether or not we live in fear because we didn't stand up. And we have to face the Lord with that. Let us hold God's word up so that they know that they can count on us to hold it up, and they can take a stand with us. They can reach new heights because of the gospel we proclaim. Now, yes. Yes, we must do so. With gentleness, absolutely. If you don't do so with gentleness, don't bother. 
We need to do so with gentleness, with patience, and with humility, 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 25. We can have all the right answers, but if we go about it the wrong way, we might as well not bother. You gotta have both. Too many people have been turned off by a harsh attitude that was unnecessary. Yes, we must do so with meekness, respect, and a good conscience. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. But having said that, we must never, ever, ever fold up at the expense of truth. Matthew 22, 29. Or compromise with error. Romans 16, 17 through 20. And so for the rest of today, the rest of today, and tomorrow morning, when you go to school, to work, wherever it is you go and whoever you encounter, for the rest of this new week, for the rest of this, for the rest of your lives, I have a challenge. No, I don't have a challenge for you. Jesus Christ does. And what is that challenge? Will you stand? Or will you fold? That's the question. you've never become a child of the living God by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you'd like more strength to stand stronger, we can help you with either of those things. I'm going to leave that sitting right here, and you're going to have to make your way around it if you come down that aisle. But if you need any of those things, please make your way to the front as we sing this song. And let's sing this song because we mean it, just as it's written. Would you join us, please?